Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host on Talk Design. I started this podcast because I wanted to share the journey of design that I've had and that many others have had. And I find it inspirational talking to people globally about what makes design tick and what makes design create a better world for others. My journey has taken me from clothing globally, women's swimwear, performance sportswear, mountaineering, yachting, all these kind of genres where each place I would learn more and more about different specifics and how clothing can support those. Also, I've worked in innovation as a systematic innovation trainer and worked with the aerospace industry as well as the marketing industry and the design industry. And all my years of design, still my favorite is the built structure and interiors and years of travel and discovery, I constantly look at what the emotions are that are created by the built space. I consider myself a student of design for my whole life and will go on that way. Some of the things that I do to support this is my podcast and then workshops and masterclasses where I teach people about trends and design thinking and tours where I take people on tour with me and we go and discover different points of architecture or interior design globally. I always think that when you're passionate about something, one of the things that you should do is is you should share it. And so creating the podcast was my way of sharing my enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of others and their passions around design with you. I hope you really enjoy it. And I ask you, would you please drop us a line? Tell us what you think. Tell us what got you excited. It's so inspiring when we get messages from our listeners that tell us about the things that shifted in their life because of who they listened to. And it gives me the inspiration to dig deeper and find more people that I can bring to your ears so that you live a better design life. My guest on Talk Design today is Mark Ryan from Trenner HL. Trenner HL is a multifunctional architectural firm that has 10 studios across the US, which range from, you know, anywhere from Atlanta through to San Francisco, but everywhere in between. And a lot of their expertise is comes out of certain office types or studio types, but they cover a lot of civic, educational, and uh, historic preservation, work of this nature. And um, Mark's a principal up there now. He has a wonderful background, which reaches from doing time with people like Walter Gropius's, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll edit this a little bit, doing time with people like Walter Gropius's studio through to uh, having connections with friends of mine like um, Peter Stutchbury and people that you've heard on the podcast like Rick Joy and these kind of 
uh, architect. So he's got this broad, broad history and a beautiful way of looking at architecture and the humanization of architecture, which I think is one of the things that's really important, often gets lost uh, when we a, get to size, but also um, get too far into our own heads. So Mark, welcome to the show. Adrian, thank you very much. This is a great honor. Thank you for inviting me. You are so welcome, man. It's really cool to have you here. Um, we were just chatting before this, and obviously I know more than the listeners or the listeners that know you know more than me. So let's start with just a really simple little bit, which would be tell me how you ended up with architecture as being part of this DNA structure of you. Was there an influence early on? When did you even know? Because you're a creative guy. You could have done a lot of different things. Um, why Why architecture? Why would you take this road instead of another one? I, I think it's always an interesting question because everybody that does this has a completely different story, right? <laughs> I agree. It's fascinating. Um, actually, it was funny. I was thinking about uh, your conversation with Rick, right? And he was a musician for a long time the before guy's he decided yeah, the guy's to go a drummer. back to architecture school. Yeah. <laughs> so I had, it's interesting. I grew up in a little country town and I grew up working for an electrical contractor. Okay. So there was always some access to construction, but <laughs> I didn't know any architects. In fact, I would argue that I didn't even know what architecture was. So I, I registered for college the first time in electrical engineering. Yeah. Not because that's what I wanted to do, but it, it was the only thing I really kind of knew how to do. But what was interesting that summer after graduating from high school uh, was hired to work on, it was literally serving a construction site. So we, there were lots of undulations on this site, lots of different buildings. Mm -hmm. And we're literally out there with a, with a transit and earth movers but the architect came to the site one day and we had this conversation, we had this interaction and I realized that's what I always wanted to do. I just didn't know what it was. Right. So, that, so you just didn't know, that changed you didn't know what that function was, that the person who does that. No, wow. no idea at all. Wow. And, and what was interesting when I did my undergrad, there was one of the professors who had done a rather unscientific study, but what he <laughs> determined was that most people who decide they want to be architects they typically decide at a young age. So I was definitely atypical in that sense. And so I'd never taken an art class in high school. So I had to start taking drawing classes and start taking drafting classes and start learning some of these things. Because then when I did show up for undergrad in Cincinnati, you had to teach yourself how to draft. They, there were no drafting classes, right? Like now there are computer classes. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. Were no, sure, there were the no day, drafting classes. They, you had to figure it out. They weren't taking time away from other curriculum to teach you how to draw or how to draft. So, so, so did thankfully they I had a little to, bit of it. So yeah, so did they expect you to know how to draft? Or did they just go, you're a smart guy, you'll figure it out? <laughs> I mean, you're talking about yourself, but like think of a whole classroom of students and, yeah, like like setting up yeah. how they do it or what's the most efficient method or why a wall, why, why a so wall I don't, width matters. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, I, and I don't know the actual 
answer. I was just glad that I had taken a drafting class at a junior college nearby. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So at least I had an introduction because in the beginning, the, the people who knew how to draft were a little bit ahead of yeah. the rest of the class, although that evened itself out pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was, yeah, it was one of those where if you, if you, well, they didn't teach you how to build models either, right? You just had to figure things out on the fly. There were textbooks for certain classes, but but no textbooks for other classes. And if you needed to represent an idea, you figure out how to represent it. Yeah. Which I think is actually kind of good. Oh, I was going to say, I think that there's um, so much value in that. Uh, it's like when, you know, people come and apply for a job if they're young, like for instance, my niece said to me, oh, I I want to be an architect. Um, Can I come and hang out with you at your studio? And I said, yeah, for sure you can. Um, But before you do that, I need to see your portfolio. Now she's like 16 years old and, um, Mm -hmm. and, and she said my portfolio. (laughs) And I said, yeah, I said, between now and when you want to hang out, um, you need to develop a set of hand drawings. You need to develop a, a set of <laughs> you know, ideas and stuff like that. And she, she's like, how do I do that? And I said, that's what you need to figure out. And I, she goes, yep. why do I need to do that? Which I thought was better than how. And I said, <laughs> um, I said, because from it, I can see what you can figure out and how your brain's working to be able to support you, to get you the most value and knowledge out of having time here with us. Like that would be the most sensible way, but without actually seeing what you, how you process something, how do we help? So they would do a similar thing. I imagine they'd go, Oh my God, Mark needs so much help in this area. Or um, this is going to slow him down from getting to this, or this is going to, because he's got this so quickly, great. We can progress him through this. Um, and they would watch where you're falling behind or m- making ground, I imagine. Or they you know, don't, I don't care. I don't, well, I I think that, you know, obviously the design studio is where everything comes together, right? Everything that you learn in the other classes, the, the idea is the culmination is in the design studio. And so I don't know that they were looking at, well, this person isn't up to speed on drawing or this person's model building capabilities aren't quite there yet. I think they were nurturing in the realm of ideas. And I think they, right. This is that idea. uh, I don't know if you know the author, Simon Sinek, but he would say, you don't, you don't hire for skills, you hire for attitude. Right. And so what they'd be looking for is they'd be looking for a certain kind of aptitude an attitude about approaching the work versus do they have all the technical tools necessary? I think that's what they were most interested in, which I really love. And it's part of what I'm always interested in my teaching process too, right? That realm of ideas. And, and as a principal at the office, you know, like you probably do the same with hiring. You go, what's the aptitude of this person? What do they fit? versus just what's their skill set because if their skill set's brilliant but their aptitude's shocking yeah you still don't yeah. want them in your group um, yeah and i think you get you get a sense from people fairly quickly i mm. think but also for me over the years it's also been part of the value of teaching 
is that you know what students do what or have what skills or what yeah. Um, yeah. talent. Yeah. And so most of the time, the people who have somehow cycled through this little studio, there's been a connection, whether they were directly my student or if they were just simply students there who I saw, Mm-hmm. who were students of my colleagues who I just thought were exceptional. Mm-hmm. And it, it's good to be able to have that little bit of insight. It helps a little bit because sometimes trying to have a, you know, an hour long conversation to decide if this is the right person to come and join your family is a tough task. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I have a funny little story about, um, you know, that, that ability thing. So many years ago, I worked in the fashion industry for a long time and uh, was asked to judge on a panel a um, fashion, a, a, a young achievers type fashion show. So mm-hmm. it was open to um, uh, schools in, in an area called the Bay of Plenty in New Zealand. So anyway... I go along and I'm there with um, a couple of other designers who, and we're judging and we've got these people parading clothing in front of us. And there's this one girl who comes out and she's dressed in, it was, it was almost like a men's suit, but it was fantastic. It was, you just looked at it as she came across and you went that, we we all just kind of looked at each other. You know, it was one of those Simon Cowell moments where we went, hmm, okay, yeah. we all looked at each other and we put our <laughs> mark down on the thing. And then we got to inspect the garments. So then they were taken off and then we got to look at those garments and it was held together with glue and staples. She hadn't sewn a stitch on the thing. And <laughs> this massive dilemma came up because part of what we were meant to judge them on was their construction knowledge. And I'm going, she's a genius. <laughs> she's like, she's a, she's ahead of the game. And they're going, there's no way we can give this girl the, the, the top prize. She hasn't actually sewn it. And we're going, but we all know her design beats everybody else's design. So we created a separate category and gave her a separate prize <laughs> um, for, for design, just for design thinking not execution. And uh, we had a big chat to her about execution privately, Uh, but that same thing, you know, like, so if they could see that your genius was this model making and they can see the form that your, your genius is the form, but your model isn't maybe made as beautifully or as correctly or as expected, then they go, we get you for the genius of the model for the, the thinking of the form, you know, like, yeah, it's fascinating. I love that. I love that yeah. uh, that way of approaching things. So, in at HL, do they or train HL? Do they um, do they approach that way, or just do just you do it that way, or how how does that work when you're working for a big company? And I know you've worked from, as you said, you work for big companies, and then you narrowed your vision down to a small company of you, and right. then yeah. That was when we got on to Glenn Merkett. You know, there's only one person who draws the line, and it is, it's you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and in Glenn's case, it's Glenn. He's the only guy who gets to touch it. Um, and then you go and expand back out to being part of a big right. firm. Uh, tell me how that shifts when you go um, 
from small to large again mm -hmm. and then you're employing people because you yours is fascinating experience coming from working in big and seeing how that works to working in small and you certainly know how that works and you're the you know you're 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 the person for everything at that point. And then going back to scaling up again or being part of a scaled company, but they have small offices. So you still have the intimacy of small offices right? as opposed to it, the big conglomerate. How does that work, for, especially for hiring and stuff? Well, it's, a, it, it, it's interesting and it's an evolving, it's an evolving organization and an evolving culture. I'll say it's because it's interesting when I first met the firm, I think I'd mentioned they were three offices in Kansas. Now mm -hmm. there's 10 offices across the country. Mm -hmm. And, and they went from, you know, making a lot of really good local pieces of architecture to now expanding in different project types, different parts of the country. And last year we did a firm wide strategic plan trying to look at all right how do we where's our areas of focus what are the areas where we feel like we need to get better and there were, there were these kind of seven ideas and one of the things that the firm as a firm mm -hmm. decided that they wanted to get better at was design wanted to up the ante on design and it's interesting i was just traveling last week and had a couple of conversations about that very idea well okay how do you do that yeah and I'm, right I'm, now I'm fascinated yeah it, it, so it's evolving so i can't even um say that i know what the right answer is but we're starting to approach it because so originally there were not project type specific expertise necessarily that as the firm grew and it was a it was a growth by acquisition model in many uh -huh. ways where there might be a, a, a small firm over here that would add some expertise to something they were already doing historic preservation for example or other things or a, a small healthcare practice in another place so that buy a firm so it's been it yes and make i mean to their credit, they were always looking to make sure the cultures fit, right? Mm -hmm. That the cultures had a, a synergy because if the cultures don't match, then you're destined to failure. Well, you destroy so both. So that's been you? very, yep. It's been very strategic over time. But then there's also been situations like me where they weren't acquiring a firm per se. They were hiring a person in a particular location. It's the way we started Atlanta. And I think, so Atlanta then grew to five people, then acquired another small firm. So I think it's I don't know, 15 or 20 people in Atlanta at the moment. So initially it was just me in Phoenix and I was collaborating wow. with teams in other places. And then I've started to grow the studio here and we expanded, but we're constantly trying to figure out, well, how do we still maintain and we have i would argue this kind of people first culture mm -hmm. we're interested in doing good work but we're also interesting like you right this is an extension of family and these are our people that we care about we certainly have numbers and targets and things that we have to of meet course. and yet yeah. i don't know that we hold anybody anybody's feet to the fire in a in a real specific way like 
other firms that I've been with or know about have done, certainly. But this design idea doesn't mean, well, okay, we lead by example of projects where, you know, we're working with, with different people in different places. Or do we say, look, we can only really impact the things that we're doing here. That just takes a long period of time to impact an adjustment or impact positive yeah. change. Yeah. So we're really trying to set up, and I, what I've got is a, um, I've got a person from each of these different studios, and we chat about once a month. And we're, tr so the part of this strategic initiative of doing better with design or, or putting a bigger priority on design, first one was said, improve the internal conversation. So last year at our all firm meeting, we initiated what we call the in-process series. So every other week in the afternoon, one of the studios presents a project, talks for about 10 to 12 minutes, and then ideally asks the group a question. What do you start? What are you struggling with? What do you need help with? What can the group engage? And this is another one of those aspects where the virtual connection helps because we can get everybody in the company if they're interested and available. Uh -huh. So we've started that. Then the next part was, how do we make ourselves accountable or more accountable to one another? And so that's the thing that we're talking through now to where I think what we're going to end up with is some greater degree of cross-studio conversation and collaboration where um, talk about ideas and challenge one another maybe in a, in a more direct way than we have in the past. Not about mm. attacking people, but attacking, no, attacking the project. things in the realm of design, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, attacking yeah. the quality of the work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like um, it, it's, it, it's perspective that, you know, you only get through collaboration and question asking. And obviously the 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 old thing is is the better the question the better the output will be and so it drives a culture of better question asking and yeah. and, and being able to lift that culture of better question asking but still with a mind to to finalization to getting to where you're trying to go yeah. because you can just end up in a mire of a rabbit hole of questions and you haven't gained anything so having that management system that says this is where we're taking it to the next step. Um, I think that people's question asking often is the weakest point. Well, you touched me. on it earlier. You were, you were asking to see a portfolio, right? Of somebody who's probably never even thought about what a portfolio is. What no, I, I loved is that you, you said she wanted to know why. Mm. which was the right question. Mm. And one of the things, again, to borrow from Simon Sinek, we keep reminding ourselves to start with why. Or if we're explaining a project to our colleagues, if you've drawn it correctly, you don't need to tell us where the front door is. You don't need to tell us where the stairs are. No, you don't need to tell us where, the, yeah. right? Yeah. We can see that. So forget about the what you've done and tell us about why you've done it. And that kind of stirring the pot with why 
And, you know, why does it matter? Why should anybody care? Why is that the well, right decision? You know, it brings up for me um, my first time ever in a Frank Lloyd Wright home, which was in California. And we had a guide, of course, because it was the only way into the thing. And as we went in, he explained that this side over here was dark. This side here had the only light source. We were compressed, of course, compressed mm -hmm. right down. And when you, so there was darkness and hidden in the darkness, there was another door. But because you came from light outside and the way even when it was lit, you were, you were naturally drawn to, I was thinking of Apple's a brilliant ability to um, be intuitive. So your intuition took you to where he wanted you to go right. and you're busy looking at that. So you don't notice the compression because you're looking for your journey. And when you find your journey, the door opens. And of course he kept us compressed a little bit, but then he let us all fly, you know, like, and the guy explained it really beautifully in that kind of manner um as we went through and it was this thing of i remember getting inside there and then i said to him well just hold on a second and i went back outside and took the journey without to observe it as opposed to just listen to him and he went mm -hmm. what, what did you do and i said i just needed to do that again um without you telling me that i needed to clear my kind of thinking because he let us discover and then he stopped and told us and he let us discover and then he stopped us and, and told us um right yeah just again that whole thing of why why did he set it up that way and it was so that we we started a journey with within his control you could say um and then mm -hmm. that would bring certain emotions and that would bring that big sense of release and now you now you'd entered um yeah, going back through what you were saying, I'm thinking about the number of times when you go to a project, or not say your project, when you, mm -hmm. as a as a creative um, design professional, you we stop to look at things. Most people just experience them in the moment, and right. they they never get. To, we're trying to analyze it. <laughs> unfortunately or we experience it in the moment and then we go we just got something there that we know what we rewind it <laughs> right i think that's always fascinating um and to to have this thing that you were saying with this um the why first and you know it, it always coming back to the why and what will the why deliver to the end user not the why for us so much but what what's the end user's why what will what right. will it do? What will we do that will affect how they will live, cohabitate, you know, interact? But the, going back to Apple with that, there was I can't remember which building it was, but it was um, Steve Jobs had them. Might have been Pixar's building or something. He had them do a bathrooms only in two areas so that people would bump into each other on the journey because he valued yep. the the bump into conversation. And if at bathrooms, everybody has to go at some point. <laughs> right, so, exactly. So, yeah, so he had the building designed with that why in mind 
and people would go, why the hell is there only a bathroom on this floor on that floor? And um, the answer was, is because we want you to bump into colleagues you otherwise wouldn't see. A chance meeting, culture. right? It's the, it's part of the open office. It's part of, yeah, a lot of different sorts of things about how do we, mm. yeah, how so do when, we uh, encourage that? When you go back to the why part, um, you could go, the tendency could be to go back to, um, because it's what the brief says. <laughs> sure. how, do you, how do you challenge that? Other than like the brief is uh, a, a few years back, a, a guy I know is an architect was telling me um, a client gave him a poem and said, design me a house. And I'm like, what? And he's like, gave me a poem and told me to design a house. And I said, where did you start? And he said, with the poem, where else could I start? And then interpreting the poem and yeah. And I'm thinking like, so yes, the brief. And what's the interpretation and what's the functionality and the requirements, the, the actual physical requirements? Mm. It's funny as you say that, right, this idea of the poem, I was immediately thinking of the classic uh, William Pena text, right, of uh, for programming called Problem Seeking. And mm. so even as you're reviewing or reading the poem, you're in search of what's the problem? What's the issue? What is to be solved? Mm. And I love the idea that there is an inspiration. My, my partner is an artist and she is inspired by poetry a lot. And it, it's one of those things that I mean, I hope that we think about the work that we do poetically, right? But it's, I think, pretty hard to, to as architects, making things that meet code and, and uh, keep the rain out and all those things that still have an aspiration to something of a higher idea. Now, whether we get all the way to poetry, um, <laughs> but I love the idea that that can spark something and just the the reading of the words, the feeling of the words then has an expression in yeah. some kind of element. Do you know, I, I, I'm thinking of that, you've sparked my mind going crazy here. Um, <laughs> I was thinking of the reverse engineering of that. So somebody shows you their forms and stuff that they're thinking of for say, a building or a project. And um, with that, if you said to them, we'll make it a poem, Write me a poem that describes what mm. you've got. What 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 would <laughs> I'm going, what would happen? <laughs> That's an interesting idea. I it, it it came to me when we were talking. I'm going, far out. If somebody had to describe it, and I was thinking, you know, like, what about this brutalist sort of style? What kind of poem would you write? And what I'm no poet, uh, but I certainly <laughs> know from my daughter's um education, you know. There's so many different like forms of poetry, you know, wh wh which have got different structures. Yeah. Which which structure would you choose to express something, and of of poetry, and then what words would you choose to express it as well? And something I really love about, well, certainly the time that I I spent with um Glenn and Peter was 
you know, how can you express that with two lines, not 20 lines? How have you taken it to the barest minimum, but it's got all the meaning? Yep. And you think about things like logo design, and that's what happens with logo design. In construction, you've got so many pieces of work, but when you still stand back to look at form, I wouldn't say always, a lot of the time, that simplicity of it is what captures you um, in amazement with it, you know, and it's because you can see clearly what that simplicity was. Mm, there you go. I hate your poor students are going to get a get a job to do a poem or <laughs> the, the office. They'll go, get that bloody podcast off the air. We don't want any more of that thing. <laughs> it's funny in the, in the fall, um, we've been asked along with a colleague been asked to teach that international studio. Uh -huh. And so we've been talking about where we might go, what kind of project we might assign. And it, it was funny. We started talking about things and I was reminded there's a book by Alan Lightman called Einstein's dreams. And I read it, gosh, I don't know, maybe 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, and Alan Lightman, by the way, uh, he taught civic, or excuse me, he taught physics and creative writing at MIT. Right. Quite a combination. Yeah. So he's writing a book called Einstein's Dreams. And in this book, each of these chapters are little four or five pages long that are that are his dreams about time. And so each of these little chapters is a different conception of time. And I remember reading that book thinking someday, I'm gonna teach a studio and this book is gonna be the textbook. Wow. And we're just gonna assign it and give it to the students and say, okay, read the book, pick one of those dreams or pick one of those conceptions of time and build a model, give Love it, it give these ideas physical form. And so my my colleague actually has now gotten a copy of Einstein's Dreams. He's in the process of reading it. I'm in the process of rereading it. So it's a, you know, that, and it's it's actually very similar or, or has some kinship with um, Calvino's uh, Invisible Cities. Right, yeah. So, um, we're kind of, actually I'm kind of reading both books simultaneously a few a few chapters of this and then switch over a few chapters of the other just, just anyway keep it's your a, mind it's a, agile <laughs> exactly but it's just this idea of how do you how do you shake things up a little bit right how do you get the yeah. frame of mind to think about the endeavor in a slightly yeah. different way a hundred percent open up some possibilities mm -hmm. I, I anyway. think I think that's where, like when you say, um, you know, as a, a company goal, better design, because that could be better in so many, yeah, I mean, design so broad. And right. it could be better in, you know, its physical appearance. It could be better in its functional ability. It could be better in its um, emotional standpoint, you know, how, how it delivers emotion or allows people's delivery of their own emotions to be supported. Mm -hmm. um, it could be better in materiality. It could be better, you know, net zero. It could be 
whatever it is there's so many different ways of saying that right and then there's got to be at some point something that i imagine it will splinter into different ways but there's got to be something that it comes back to a set of values that is somewhat measurable so you can go did we get better at design well it's an it's it's such an interesting point that you make because Certainly the values have an impact on how you judge this endeavor, mm. right? And yet, if you're just trying to up the ante on the quality of the work, how do you quantify that? How do you quantify better design, right? 100%. That, is, it, is it because you've gotten more awards? It because, right? So there are things, and we were talking earlier about kind of the, the business aspect of things, mm -hmm. right? There are certain metrics that you can measure but in many ways design is one of those things that mm. if you haven't seen it can you describe what it is right it or, or yeah. is it one of those i know it when i see it it's a, right because it's a it's a challenging subjective not so completely objective thing however we also have in an environment right we teach this and so we're teaching, in some ways, a certain aspect of subjectivity, right? Do we talk about, you were talking about um, simplicity a moment ago, and do we teach an idea that says, yeah, and by the way, there is an elegance in that simplicity, um, right? We can make things more complicated, but how do we get them to that point where we're evoking that? desired emotional response what is that 100%. all about and i think that that's the kind of thing that everybody has to grapple with it's mm. it's it's front of my mind right now i just we opened a new courthouse last friday in missouri uh-huh and the day before i was actually in racine wisconsin speaking of frank lloyd right i was in racine wisconsin <laughs> yeah. making a presentation we're doing a, a project there right now but in order to get from that presentation to this new building opening, I ended up going through Fayetteville, Arkansas. Just It just happened to be yeah. the way to go. So as soon as I made that change to my flight schedule, I sent a note to Marlon Blackwell and told him I was coming through. And so we got together and had a good time. He, he toured me through his office, graciously gave me one of his new books. And the next day on my drive back from Missouri, um, he had set up for me a tour through one of his schools. And he had done three buildings oh, wow. for this school. Mm -hmm. And I had seen it published. I kind of had a sense of what it might look like. And you know, you get mm. this too. You, you see something in a magazine and then you go see it in person. Yeah. And I was talking about it earlier this morning. I was talking about it over the week. This this project is haunting me. And it's not at all what I expected. Yeah, and right. I'm intrigued by the way these buildings sit in the landscape and their connection to one another. It's all great. But what haunts me is the experience of moving through the inside. And oh. the the certain unexpected and yet uplifting quality about it. It's much higher interior volume than you would expect from this low slung, seemingly exterior form. 
but also the way simple things like lockers and diffusers and things get, you know, acoustical dampening all get worked together in a system. Yeah. To wow. the point where you start, well, they're so well integrated, they don't hit you over the head, right? Usually what we see are those little mistakes, like, oh, that's the wrong place for a diffuser to pop out of a wall, right? <laughs> exactly. That's usually so, what you see. You go, really? Who was it's the idiot to so that? Well, <laughs> it's so well thought of. The thing, the component pieces are th so well thought through that you start feeling this overall kind of amazing elegance and resolution. And I, I was conveying that you walk in and you realize that the ceilings are just the most basic run-of-the-mill utilitarian four by eight sheets of plywood. Nothing fancy. Yep. And I, I, I immediately saw it. And then over time, you realize that that, which is pervasive throughout, goes away. Because it just becomes part of the overall experience. It's this nice, warm color, mm -hmm. this nice, warm tone and material. You don't focus on it quite so much. And there's undulations and modulations. And, it's, and then you move into the next building and all of a sudden, boom, there is this amazing burst of blue. Totally unexpected. And yet sectionally and spatially and progressively um that procession is unbelievable and so these things it's just so funny i love going to look at the work of others i love yeah. checking things out rarely do i get haunted quite like this because this was so good and so i mean i expected it to be good I'll oh be yeah honest, uh, well, I, I mean I, hey. I also you were in good company. You were in good company. I didn't company, expect so, but... it to be this good. Yeah, right. Yeah. And that, yeah, truly isn't, special. Isn't that something like, so we go back to that thing of better design. If it can haunt you and you're well-educated, well-versed um, <laughs> and, you know, largely like um, aware and if something can grab you and haunt you, you know that that's better design. When you cannot get it out of, you know, your, your, your analytical mind is asking all these questions. Your emotional mind is going, uh, I, but I was in utopia, you know, like I was in this place. Right. And right. who cares about the analytics? It's just, you take it on for now. Yet there was probably no unconscious decisions that he made in that design process. And I wonder if he bemodeled it and walked through it a thousand times to make that decision. I don't I don't know his process. It's interesting. Mm. I'm 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 pouring over the book that he gave me, and there are certainly sketches in there and the plans and things. And so it's good to see. You know, we, we envision these things in our mind. It's always good to see the confirmation <laughs> or the, the things that, wait, we thought it was this way, but it's a little different. Oh, yeah. that's how it was accomplished, right? And I, I mean, I think that I, I joke with my students, if I could find a way to make it financially viable, I'd be a student for life. Yeah. But instead, 
right? I, I hope that I'm a student of life or a student for life. And so I'm interested in always going to see new things, always trying to learn new things and always trying to make the work better. I mean, I think that I think it's logical that we look at the next project and 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 maybe it's just as simple as saying the new ones or the, the next one's got to be better than the last one. And yet mm. seeing other things, seeing other work, being impacted by it in a profound way. What does that do to our own work, right? Does that allow us to see other possibilities that maybe we didn't see yesterday? Oh, I, I think, love that. I, I love that. Without idea. a doubt. I think that that is the, you know, when something can emotionally, um, as you say, haunt you or hold on to you so tightly, yep. it, it makes you question everything you've done in the past. And certainly everything Hopefully that you will do everything. in the future. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, you probably get to the point where in the past ones you go, ah, okay. So I feel comfortable with those ones. And I see the shortcomings of maybe these other ones. And yeah. then you then you discover your process and then you go, did, did were we ever there? And did it get taken away from us? you know, through client interaction or, or whatever it was. Did Were we ever there? Or if we were never there, then what was the process before it that never allowed us to get there? I always think of Frank Lloyd Wright with this, you know, like the guy designed, I don't know, a thousand houses or more. And Falling Water is his most famous. And with... Not that he didn't design many other amazing homes and structures, but Falling Water is the most famous one. And I don't know his work well enough to know, you know, with a full stop at the end of it. But isn't it the only piece of work like that that he ever did that actually sits like it does? Not the fact it hangs over a river, but the forms of it, the shapes of it. It wasn't like that we go and go, oh, well, there's falling water there. And then over here, there was this one that's very, very similar. The same idea said it was like it was like a. Well, and yet. I mean, I, I do think that that work especially is a very response, a very specific response to a very particular condition, mm. The, mm. The, the site mm -hmm. conditions. Right. And yet at the same time. I think most of us would look at it and recognize it as a Frank Lloyd Wright project. So there are, yeah, I agree. there are aspects to it, right? Where, and I don't think that he's consciously trying to copy himself all the time, but he's got these things that are his sensibilities mm. and, and things that he's sensitive to the way, well, the, the Cherokee red window mullions, for example, right? Yep. That that gets used in lots of different projects. He's or got lots of signature that... sensibilities and, and values that he keeps repeating. You know, the front door yeah. never on the front, you know, the these kinds of things. So it's a, it's a series and yeah, it's probably a value set or a set of ideas that appeal to him, but they also changed over time, mm -hmm. right? That, that, and or they changed in different situations or different conditions as a response to a, a particular situation. So it's a 
Yeah, it's a funny sort of thing because I don't necessarily look at it as being all that different or separate from his larger body of work because he was always working or often working with these seemingly uh, cantilevers that were too long and <laughs> right pushing things or hiding a, a, a sequence or a path, right? So that those kind yeah. of things, they're there. They're just there in a slightly different way and in a particularly unique way on that particular on that project. particular side. Yeah. But I think you could say the same thing about the Roby house too. Sure. Um, sure. Right? Yeah. That it's, it's very different and yet it has some of those things still embedded in it. Different mm. material even, but still those basic it's still ideas got those basic ideas and expansion yeah yep yeah yeah he's got his he's got his pieces that he keeps repeating and i think you know like before when we were talking about better design one of my thoughts that came to me was calatrava's work and i mm -hmm. go to see his work is always exciting and it's always but there's a sereneness in the excitement it's not like a disco party you know it, it it's a completely different feeling from that and he captures emotion with buildings and the impossible, what would seem somewhat the impossible. Um, and I, I think like that and I go, it's, you know, for that point, he's a standout because of that. And then you go down, well, we want better design. And everybody goes, well, <clears throat> how do I be a standout because of that? And that isn't necessarily achieve better design. It achieves in an element of it, but it's not necessarily the overall. Um, you know, often with color travis, where you get so taken by the uh form that you're you're emotionally just attached to these forms more so than maybe the function. Um, uh, you know, like it's but it's interesting, eh? Like how all these different mm -hmm. pieces come together to create better design. Mm. Well, I, you know, it's funny, I, I, as you were talking there, what, what struck me, you know, I, I was mentioning to you, I had some projects in Australia a couple of years ago, yeah. and the one that I was working on in Victoria, most of the time was spent in, in Melbourne. And I always take a bike with me. So I'm always <laughs> my way of exploring the landscape of, of learning someplace new is not at the scale and the speed of a car, but it's at the pace of a bicycle Push and it's bikes, the way man. yes exactly and it um it's the way i kind of absorb the environment well one of the on one of the weekends what i was doing was out riding around in search of Mercut's. um oh what's the project he did it's the um i want to call it a synagogue but i don't know oh, that it is uh yeah um, no i think it might be i think it, it could be but what's have, interesting there to check so, as well but yeah i mean i think about i think about his work and i look at that project his val his value set is in there completely and yet it for me it looks nothing like any of his other projects okay. that was a very specific response to a certain condition or set of conditions Mm. beautiful mm. but i don't think that was one where you would immediately say oh yeah that's a glenn Mercut building right yeah that's yeah, exactly 
yeah so then it's it and if you go up and look at it and investigate it it's incredibly well done Mm, well it's clear once you understand that it's gland project that his value system is there yeah it's not immediately apparent that that's his work it's a mosque i just looked it up to be sure yeah 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 and it is it's amazing yeah um yeah as you say, the the value set. So when you did, um, we're going to do better design. Did you, um, did you define a value set that uh, belongs to the firm or to each studio block? It, a, there's a so firm, fascinating. <laughs> there's a there's a firm wide. There's an articulation of yep. values and um but don't ask me to recite them from no, memory but there is one yeah because i th- i think of it as you know this is one of the and we 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 do talk about values and i think that in some ways that you know our values coupled with our behaviors is how we define our own internal culture right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways we're talking about a potential of a cultural shift where maybe we're not necessarily changing our values as much as maybe we're changing our behavior a little bit. We're, we're changing our approach to the values, um, changing our behaviors. There's a, I gave a talk a while back and I borrowed, um, Peter Bregman wrote in the Harvard business review a few years ago, and he was talking about how we can get better at anything. Anybody can get better at anything. And there are only two reasons why we can't. One is that we don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) But two, the second reason that we won't get better at something is if we're not willing to feel the discomfort that's necessary to bring about change. Right? Mm. So we... As mammals, and I would argue there's probably not many living beings on this planet that are predisposed to change. We like to talk about change. Oh, yeah. It's a good catch word, but it's not one that we But change is incredibly difficult, right? And so what we have to understand and what we have to embrace, and my my students sort of tease me sometimes, I've been known to say (laughs) quite frequently embrace the struggle, right? They're struggling with something. I'm like, "This this is the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Because we have to learn to embrace a little discomfort. We have to learn to embrace maybe thinking about things in a different way, in a way maybe that we haven't wanted to think about it in the past as a means of getting to that next level. Oh, look, I, I come back to, you know, disaster is the mother of invention or adversity is the mother of invention. Um, when we have no choice but to change, we go to work. And I always think of, um, you know, some projects that, that you get, they, you could, you know, I want to say you could do them with your eyes closed, that they are not necessarily going to challenge you because they're so easy as such. And then that's when I go, uh, like certainly in my studio, I go, no, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. This is right. where we go to work. Let's, let's, I don't care whether we end up with the simplest or that, that first solution or, or the obvious solution. 
or whether we end up with the way out solution. I just want the discovery. I just want the, to be rigorous in yeah. discovery. And um, we, we, we don't design things because just because we're paid to do it. We design things because we bring a skill that we should honor with doing the, this is the discovery. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's, we've been given this gift, this skill, this ability, and then we're given the amazing opportunity to actually use it and affect other humans' lives with it. Work bloody hard for it. It's worth it. <laughs> yes. But, but also sometimes, isn't it completely dependent on how you then tell the story? Oh, how you how you frame it right mm -hmm. i mean mm -hmm. it's interesting I, I was just thinking we, we were talking before about the the work in australia and i was engaged by the northern territory government. Oh, yeah i want you to dig into this and, a little for me that would be great and so in, essentially the way this happened initially so i'm working in i'm working in melbourne for the state of victoria and what they let us know is that in part, they were looking for something that they hadn't seen before or that they didn't necessarily feel like they had at their local disposal. Because in some ways you'd say, why in the hell would you have an architect come all the way from the US? But this was um, this is a series of projects, series of interventions that I've done in the past for troubled kids. and. I've never been interested necessarily in being an expert or being a specialist, I'm simply interested in doing good work. And I'm interested in work that's impactful. And somehow I've done a series of projects for troubled kids that have gotten some notoriety, won some awards, gotten some exposure. And so that was something that I think initially Victoria hadn't seen before. So that that's how I got there initially. But then because of this, Royal Commission report that came out in November of 17, the Northern Territory needed to do something different. They needed to rethink their system. So this is, and I would argue that this is design, rethinking a system uh -huh. that's designed. That is design. Right? Yeah. And, and so when they invited me to come up, they were, they had scheduled a series of workshops. There were some workshops in, in Darwin. There were some workshops in Alice Springs. Uh-huh. And I'm remembering specifically, uh, the first one was in Darwin. It, the workshop went well, but I'm remembering very specifically in Alice Springs. And I remember walk, it was a community center or something where we were meeting and, and we walked in the room and I could feel <laughs> the hesitation in the room. I could feel the Aboriginal elders wondering who the heck is this guy and what the heck is this American going to tell us or teach us about anything? That, that, that feeling of being dismissed before you start. Well, it, uh, yes, uh, but, in some ways. Yeah, right? in some but ways, then, just the underlying factor. Well, and mm -hmm. but also I get it. I mean, I think if our oh. roles were reversed, I would have been equally yeah. as skeptical of them. Right. So, so, there's an acknowledgement of it. Then I think it's about, all right, now, how do we turn this around? And so it talked a little bit about sort of the state of affairs in other places and how other places were sort of thinking about or rethinking their 
commitment to an engagement with kids who are, you know, in the in the system need some challenge. In many ways, our most vulnerable population. Sure. And I started using a couple of small projects that I had done on Native American Indian reservations in the U.S., where I'm clearly not Native American. <laughs> I was hired by these tribes to come in and do something, and it, they they they're all all the tribes are different, and yet there was an idea about how do we not I'm I'm not because I'm not of that history of that tribe. I'm not trying to design in specific readings. What I'm trying to do instead is create a particular kind of framework that allows them to make their own readings. And in fact, most of the reservations that I've worked on, they've not been a single tribe reservation. They've been multiple tribes. Right. Every tribe has a different history, a different um, set of beliefs but they have also some commonality. So anyway, it was it was maybe in some so ways really a blessing a, to have. Yeah, you've got to mix their DNAs. You've yeah. got to create something where they can all create their own. Yeah, it's not right, yeah. and and so and that that was in a couple of cases rather successful. So those were the projects, the Native American projects, to talk about not an imposition of design, but a. Uh, uh, compatibility and a sympathy about connecting with the aboriginal culture and the temperature of the room changed over the course of that afternoon and it was a really wonderful afternoon so that initial hesitation had just completely transformed into a warm welcoming and they were they were completely wonderful folks this, this, you go back to and embrace the idea. Yeah, go back to something you said before about the story that you tell. So you have your design, but the story that you tell and that story of what you told them allowed them to come into your space and then you to go into their space and that you were partnering with them as opposed to telling them. Yes, exactly. And, and you're They had to see themselves story. in it. Yeah. Yeah, often right? think they of... needed to see themselves. There wasn't somebody coming from the outside to impose something on them. I wrote the note "imposition of design" as you, um, yeah, as as you said it, and I, <laughs> I I I think it's a really good thing to keep front and in of mind is this imposition of design, and because I always come from this thing that you know we take a piece of whatever landscape it is even if it's a subdivision it's a landscape that we right. destroy to put a house or a building or a complex or something on we change that landscape for the period that building stays on there and beyond right um and energetically we change it maybe even further who knows i go the, there's a a responsibility and a um, or maybe I'll just leave it as a responsibility that when you've got that opportunity to really give it some, you know, the hard work part, the thought part, the how is this best for this or for whoever it's yeah. for, because we are going to ruin a piece of landscape. Now, the developer may have ruined it previously to us, but that's our <laughs> opportunity to, to restore it as well. It's our opportunity to do better with it. 
And so I think it's really fascinating. That conversation through there, I really loved. Like, just, yeah, I love I love the piece about Peter Bergman's, you know, you've got to want to, but then you've got to feel the you, discomfort. You've got you, to you've got, yeah, there has to be a willingness, right? There has to be a willingness to listen. There has to be yeah. a willingness to put yourself in the shoes of others, yeah, right? The, this is not about trying to impose a set of ideas it's trying to construct a set of conditions and a set of ideas that match that mm. set of needs mm. i've got a last question for you based on that because i can go <laughs> in a million different places here so easily i'm going to give you my favorite last question which is one last project and you can never draw another thing you can never influence another design this one you can do solo if you want, or you can engage the whole office. Um, but you've got one last project, and um, that's it. You're, you've hung up your pencil. Um, what would you choose and why? It's funny. It's funny. I just had a milestone birthday last year, and I was joking 21. that I'm really excited about now starting the second half of my life. <laughs> I um, love that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I, I tell my no... kids I'm living to 120. So, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly well. And that I don't, I mean, I, I'm sure there will come a time when somebody says, you know, Mark, you don't really need to come to the office tomorrow. You know, why don't you just go ahead and write there? But I have no plan to stop doing what I'm doing. I don't have a retirement plan. I'm doing what I want to be doing. And so there isn't the, the retirement aspect isn't really out there. Um, and yet there may come a time when they don't want me. But I think that... <laughs> and you go I, back to what a firm I, of one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It may well be. But, I, you know, I think we always, we want the work that we do to be impactful, whether that's a single family residence or whether that's a civic building of any type. I think we want it to be good. We want it to positively impact the people in the community. And I think that, I mean, I'm doing a whole series of projects for troubled kids across the country. And as much as I said, I'm not interested in being a specialist, I'm loving this work. And I'm loving working with a set of forward thinking clients who are completely willing to rethink an education component or completely rethink that the engagement with the public, wait, we need to have a community room. What if the local organizations want to come here in the evenings to have their meetings or the community engagement, right? Why not let that? This is a civic building, right? This says something about how a community feels about or values its kids. So that mm. always feels pretty powerful. And I, I, you know, it's not like I feel like I've got a particular project type that I've never done. I feel pretty fortunate to have done a diversity. A huge, a huge um, diverse range. You know, art museums and, and university buildings and all kinds of different things. But I actually think that these these projects for troubled kids. So if I couldn't do, if I was doing a last one or if I couldn't do another one, I think that's what I'd, if I was choosing, that's what I'd choose for the last one. 
And, and the only thing I might try to do is sort of push that envelope a little bit. We've been doing them, for example, we've been doing a lot of them where there's no such thing as a perimeter fence anymore. There's no such thing as including barbed wire or razor mm -hmm. ribbon. Mm -hmm. It's like, let's just let the building form the necessary the security perimeter. Yeah. But this is, this is civic architecture, right? And so, so for me, I would say it doesn't matter if it's a city hall or a juvenile hall. This is something that says something about how a community really feels. And it's an expression of a set of community values, right? To bring the whole thing sort of full circle, personal values, but also collective values. Um, and I think that's part of the beauty of being able to, in some ways, maybe shock clients once in a while I, and uh... engage them in a conversation that pushes them. I mean, I want them to push us too. But I feel like it's our job as architects to push <laughs> push back against the desires and the needs of our clients or or those always that I should say. always There's challenge them. Yeah. Yeah. Just challenge yep. them. I, I, when you were telling this it brought up, I watched the other night um, a movie, Michael Moore movie called Where to Invade Next. And he goes around the world invading different countries to steal their best ideas and bring them back to America. And um, <laughs> which is a, a great concept. And I love it. Yeah. If you can watch it, watch it. You will enjoy the piece on prisons, which I think okay. is in Finland. And um, oh, they've got a good one there. A yeah, series of good I ones. I think there. it was Finland, or, or if not Finland, it was Norway, but it was one of those places. And it just the difference in um, human behavior and the way people were approached was, yep. was, was all of the things that he went to steal from other countries and invade and put the American flag there for would um, help any country. So I enjoyed that yep. part of it. Yep. And of course it's yep. Mike Moore. So he has a certain way yeah. of putting things. Um, I like your answer <laughs> though, because your answer was leaving a trail of legacy. That's way beyond, you know, there's that saying um, the person who plants a tree, knowing they'll never sit under it in their life is the person who thinks in the future and um, yours is leaving a legacy that creates more hope and opportunity for our civilization. And I certainly hope so. I know you do. That's part of why you do it. It's <laughs> part of why you said that that was the thing you chose, you know, like, um, and that's processional value. It's generational. It goes for a long yeah. time. And I think that's, that's the well, real you think beauty. About it. We, we spend so much energy trying to please our clients, right? They're paying mm -hmm. the bills. We're supposed mm -hmm. to be oh, absolutely. providing yep. something appropriate and a service to them. And yet, I would argue, we have not done our true responsibility. If we have, we have to, we have to please them, but we have to also completely think beyond them because at yeah. least these projects that we're building now, they're going to outlive anybody who's involved in the process right now. Yeah. So they, we have to think for the client, certainly, but we also simultaneously have to think beyond them in terms of how are these things going to be impacting the community and the well, society at large. Well, think of doing... Beyond. Yeah, I, I so agree. You think of going on the Alcatraz tour. 
<laughs> yes. Yeah. And and going, that's what they did. What? And then you've got to go to, yeah. I mean, that right. was in the last hundred or so years. So then think a hundred years in advance of where you are now. Um, yep. And what you're leaving on the planet is this legacy or is this peace. I think it's beautiful. Yep. Exactly. Mark, amazing conversation. I have <laughs> loved it. Loved it. There's so many great points in there. And I'm looking forward to getting to Phoenix and coming and uh, seeing you. It would be Look, when you've got, you've got your two weeks, if you venture through Phoenix, we would, we I, I would think I could make that. that happen. I think I could make that happen. <laughs> um, that was really brilliant, man. Thank you so much for your time. It was Thank fantastic. you for the invitation. This is great. I've been, I've been enjoying listening to your podcast. So it's uh, an incredible honor to be part of it myself. So thank you very much for the invitation. And I look forward to meeting in person. Yeah, sometime me very too. Soon. Me too. Really looking forward to it. And thank you. Yeah, again. me too. Cheers, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Adrian, thanks. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, if it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot ch chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of them, someone and then they went to reach out and then you, you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why, why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.